This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Daily Digest on the Bigger Picture with me, T. Xiao Ik and Lim Su. And so today we have one story for you. And it's in conjunction with the International Day of Education, which actually was yesterday. And uh, so today we'd like to discuss what this day is all about. Um, We will be sharing some statistics on the lack of education access around the world. And we're going to speak to a Teach for Malaysia alumni on some reforms that we need to see moving forward. Yes, and in, uh, in conjunction with that on Twitter, we are asking you what should be prioritised to improve our education system. So uh, the three options that we have are eliminate exams, better digital learning or focus on career tracks. So you can take that poll on Twitter at BFM Radio. But if you have any other suggestions you'd like to share, you can tweet us um, also at BFM Radio or WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. Yes, so uh, late in 2018, the United Nations General Assembly declared the 24th of January as the International Day of Education in celebration of the role of education for peace and development. And according to the United Nations, education is a human right, of course, a mm-hmm. public good and a public responsibility. Specifically, the UN has declared that, and I quote here, without inclusive and equitable quality education and lifelong opportunities for all, countries will not succeed in achieving gender equality and breaking the cycle of poverty that is leaving millions of children, youth and adults behind. Yeah, but you know, despite the importance of education constantly being stressed, to date, education disparity and access is still a problem. And here are some statistics that really, you know, show that gap. So 258 million children and youth worldwide still do not attend school today. Mm. 617 children and adolescents cannot read and do basic math. Things are particularly particularly bad in lower income nations. So for example, less than 40% of girls in sub-Saharan Africa complete lower secondary school and more than half of children and youth refugees do not attend school at all. And you know, those are worldwide statistics, Mm. but things aren't rosy here in Malaysia either. Take the Orang Asli communities in the peninsula, for example. According to the Ministry of Education, only 30% of students in these Orang Asli communities actually complete secondary school. And approximately 70% of refugees in Malaysia who are at a schooling age do not attend schools altogether. And these statistics were, you know, uh, from a so-called normal time when we didn't have COVID-19 or lockdowns. So before COVID, BC. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, and you know, now that there is a pandemic, the situation is much worse. Um, according to the UN, the closure of schools, universities and other learning institutions, as well as the interruption of many literacy and lifelong learning programs has affected the lives of 1.6 billion students students in over 190 countries. Mm. Um, in Malaysia, we constantly hear stories by folks in rural communities, particularly in East Malaysia and Sabah and Sarawak. Students have to, you know, we've heard the stories of students having to climb trees and hike up hills just to try and get a stable internet connection in hopes to attend online classes or exams. And it, I think that's something that a lot of us take for granted. It's 2020. I yes. cannot believe that there are people, um, like you say, we take it for granted. Mm. There are people who haven't even had a, had a taste of this. Yes. 
yet. And, and when, um, you know, we had former education minister, Dr. Mazli Malik, come on our Live and Learn show recently. And on that show, he spoke about how he feels that there's going to be a lost generation. Uh, and he's talking about an entire generation of young people who missed out on education because of this pandemic. He talked about how difficult things are for many low-income communities because students can't attend school physically, they don't have laptops or access to the internet. A lot of them have begun um, roaming the streets and they're, you know, uh, resorting to engaging in unproductive and unhealthy activities. Mm. Yeah, so in conjunction with International Day of Education, we will now be uh, speaking to Kularetnam Vijaya Kumar, a Teach for Malaysia alumni, who uh, and he's currently attached to Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman as well as Closing the Gap. So welcome to the show, Kula. Um, tell us a bit about yourself and the work that you do. Yeah, I've been in education for about five years now. Uh, I'm currently the program manager at the Tunku Abdul Rahman Foundation. Uh, we're a scholarship body that was established in 1966. Uh, we run both our Tunku Abdul Rahman scholarship for undergraduate students across Malaysia and the Closing the Gap program, uh, which is a university access program aimed at helping underprivileged and underrepresented youth to access university. Before I was part of the foundation, I used to teach Sejarah and English in a public school as a Teach for Malaysia fellow for two years. So I've had experience both in the public and private sector of education, as well as in education, as well as higher education. Hmm. So why did you get into teaching in the first place? I think the simplest way to put it is it's because teachers catalyze potential. Uh, for many of us, we wouldn't be who we are if it wasn't for the teachers in our lives. I think I'm a very clear example of that because when I finished SPM, uh, like many Indian people, I wanted to do medicine because it was <laughs> what the people around me told me to do. Uh, it wasn't really what I wanted. I thought I wanted it, um, but I never really explored anything else until I met this one teacher in college and they didn't do anything particularly amazing uh, but it changed my life they basically went on a stage and they spoke for one minute about psychology and it was that one minute briefing uh, that is the reason that I am a psychology graduate and a teacher today instead of a doctor who isn't really interested in medicine and that's what a teacher does and when I was a teacher in public school, I, I focused on doing the same with my students. So I sponsored them to go to plays. I ran debate training because debate isn't as popular these days. And I got students to think about history differently. A uh, teacher can change a lot in their school and with their students. And that, I think, is the main reason to be a teacher. Though, of course, I, I don't deny that there is a lot of stigma against teaching. You know, there are people who say those who can't do teach is unfortunate. Uh, I think in advanced countries, if we look at it, they recruit teachers from among their best graduates. And I think it makes all the difference because the most valuable investment a country can make is in the future of its citizens. And the way to do that is through education. So you mentioned graduating with a degree in psychology and that's uh, something very fascinating that we've read about you is that you're passionate about applying psychology in education and community building. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So let's start by talking about the relationship between the individual and the school. Uh, school is the first place where an individual interacts meaningfully with the state. It is the 
that foundation, that foundation of relationship that is started at school that can often go on to define the relationship an individual has with the state and with the government. And I don't think that is a lens that we use to look at school enough. Uh, the practices that we put in place in the institution of school can go on uh, to impact a person's life much later on. In fact, a lot of people look back on their school days, you know, to kind of figure out how they turned out. And that's what I'm trying to mean. Like, when we look at psychology and education, it has to go beyond just the way that we carry out certain practices in the classroom. We have to look at the totality of practices in school and how they affect people and the communities that they build. Because I think a lot of the social issues that we look at, particularly around segregation and discrimination, have their roots in school and their solutions in the school environment as well. And, you know, I'm curious, what has been going through your mind over the past 10 months or so, looking at the way teaching and learning has been affected by COVID? Uh, it's, it's honestly been very heartbreaking because a lot of it was avoidable. Uh, a lot of the students that we work with, uh, we actively work with about 150 students uh, from primarily from across Selangor, and some of them are also from all across Malaysia. And a lot of them have been sharing with us about the mental and emotional toll of the pandemic. And it's something that's affecting everybody, yes. But SPM is stressful, and school is stressful in the best of times. And this is not the best of times. So on top of the stresses caused by the pandemic, the students have had to deal with unclear guidelines, this feeling that their safety and their well-being is not being prioritized. In fact, uh, back during the second wave of the pandemic, uh, closer to the middle of 2020, many of my teacher friends were reporting that their attendance numbers for online classes were between 30 to 60%. So from six to nine months ago, we already knew that there was a massive disparity in how students were learning. I don't feel enough has been done about that. And we will see the long-term effects of this soon. We are speaking to Kularetnam Vijayakumar, a Teach for Malaysia alumni who's currently attached to Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman and Closing the Gap. Uh, today on the Daily Digest, we're absorb- observing International Day of Education, which fell yesterday with a look at issues related to access to education, especially in light of the pandemic. We'll continue our conversation with Kula uh, after the break, but do uh, keep your thoughts coming in. If you'd like to take our poll at BFM Radio, uh, you can tweet us um, your thoughts about uh, improving the education systems. When do you want to quickly um, just run through the poll question that we have up? Yes, yeah, so we're asking you what should be prioritised to improve our education system. The three options we have is uh, the three options we have are eliminate exams, better digital learning or focus on career tracks. And like Shawik said, you know, if you have other suggestions, do tweet them or WhatsApp them to us. Yep, so uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back on the Daily Digest, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to the Daily Digest on The Bigger Picture. I'm T. Shao Ik with Lim Su An uh, in conjunction with International Day of Education, which was observed yesterday. Mm-hmm. We're looking at what this day means and what are some critical issues regarding education in Malaysia today. So before the break, we went through some statistics on education disparity and access in Malaysia, as well as around the world. We also started speaking to Kularetnam Vijayakuma, who's a Teach for Malaysia alumni, and he's currently attached to Yayasan Tunku Abdul Rahman and close 
closing the gap on the work he has done in education. So Kula's on, uh, still on the line with us right now. Thanks for staying with us, Kula. Now, um, moving on to, um, you know, if we look at the stop-start nature of the education process over the past year because of the pandemic, um, do you think it could have been handled better? Something that I saw teachers talking about uh, mainly overseas, but I think it was something that Malaysians were talking about, just not as publicly, was how we could have taken this year as an opportunity. We could have taken this year to act more decisively for the welfare of our teachers and our students. Uh, I think everybody who's been in education is aware that this was a massive shift for everybody. Uh, Teachers are primarily used to working physically. Their teaching aids are also physical. Students are also more used to physical classes. Uh, The virtual space was not very much used for education in Malaysia. We knew that this would cause a lot of stress to everybody involved. So we could have acted more decisively to, for example, postpone or cancel SPM from the get-go. I know, of course, this was difficult due to centralization and how we feel that academic performance and SPM results are very important. But we could have done that. We could have told students early on, look, you know, this pandemic is going to affect learning. So let's just postpone SPM to next year. I recognize that some students would prefer to get SPM over and done with. And I think if we can't cancel SPM completely, you know, if it's too much of an action, at the very least, we could offer students the choice. Uh, whether they would like to take SPM in February uh, as planned or in November. Uh, If they want to retake their whole SPM year, that should also be an option. I think there's a fundamental lack of autonomy given to students, and that plays a part in how I feel we could have avoided a lot of the stresses caused by the pandemic. Hmm. So to press that a little further, you know, do you subscribe to the school of thought that decentralization of our education system is the right way to go? Oh, definitely. The urban-rural divide in Malaysia is massive. And a lot of the support and or opposition towards educational issues reflect the different contexts in which our educators work in. So if we said that students should learn how to code, there are people who would agree to this. And many of these people exist and live in urban centers. But in rural areas priorities are different. Likewise, when we look at TPSMI, the teaching of science and math in English, uh, many people in the urban bubble would say that teaching in English is the right way to go. But there are many areas in which teaching science and math in Malay is the right thing to do. So many of the differing answers to educational issues relies on context. And recognizing that the Malaysian context is so different that we have students who study in schools which don't have electricity, much less internet, whereas we have other schools where they have broadband and every student has their own personal computer, is an important thing to recognize in dealing with educational issues in our country. A decentralized approach would be best for everybody. Now, one of the issues that has come to the forefront because of this pandemic is access to education. People had to spend the better part of last year doing online classes at home. But, you know, at the same time, every day, you know, we see on social media, we hear stories of so many students not having laptops or access to the internet and are thus unable to attend these lessons. What is the long-term impact of this? They say that 
societal disruptions like this, like COVID, uh, it impacts the most vulnerable people the most. There's already a proven correlation between socioeconomic status or wealth and academic performance. The pandemic will make this difference much, much worse. Uh, it's not just about devices. It goes much further than that. If you have your own space to study, if you have your own table at home, that already makes a significant difference in your academic performance. And that's not something that a lot of students have. Uh, access to the school environment, access to learning materials, it makes a significant difference. Uh, if we look at, I believe there was research about this, but I can't quote it offhand. Uh, a student in an upper middle class home has access to significantly more books compared to a student from a lower middle class home. And that difference compounds every year and it leads to this massive learning gap. And the reason I mentioned this is because in Malaysia, your academic results do a lot to determine your future and where you can go. If you don't score a certain amount of A's in your SPM or in your PT3, uh, you are effectively locked out of certain pathways and certain scholarships. In fact, many scholarships do operate on a purely academic basis which ultimately hurts students. So I feel like we will likely see a long-term effect on socioeconomic mobility, as well as on how people from less privileged backgrounds access university. So Kula, what can we do about this? You know, How do we reimagine Malaysia where this isn't a problem? In terms of reimagining Malaysia, it's quite difficult to say because a lot of the issues that we're facing were predicted and were being worked on. So, for example, when we talk about access to internet, uh, we don't even have to go as far as Sabah and Sarawak. Even students in the Klang Valley struggle with access to internet, struggle with access to data. So, clearly, we need a much more comprehensive reimagining. But uh, I would like to point to two things. First of all, we can recognize that schools, particularly in rural areas, also function as community centers. The community is built around the school. And so we have to go back and look at a national infrastructure project that has been in the limelight over the past two years, One Bastari Net. So One Bastari Net, the objective of One Bastari Net was to provide internet over a five-kilometer radius around the school. Uh, Now, I'm not sure why that didn't happen, but it didn't happen. Uh, And... I want us to imagine a future in which there was 5km radius of Wi-Fi around each and every school across Malaysia. It would have made a massive difference. But uh, putting infrastructure aside, uh, in the here and now, what we could have done is to take this year as an opportunity uh, for us as educational bodies to reimagine what assessment looks like. How would we look at students in the absence of FPM results, in the absence of trial results? The problem with our current system is that we put too much weight on one test, on SPM. And in the absence of SPM, we aren't really familiar with how to assess students. It was an opportunity for us to look at how to do things differently. Uh, and that's something that we're doing at the Tunku Abdul Rahman Foundation. So... Since last year, when we launched our scholarship uh, in the midst of the pandemic, we looked at deprioritizing academic results and instead highlighting grit, perseverance, leadership, 
as well as the vision and ambition of a student. When you look at students more holistically, uh, outside of just their result, you allow uh, many different types of students to shine. Our system, because of its academic focus, produces a type of student that Rodney King, uh, this is an Australian Rodney King, wrote about and calls the exam athlete. They are specialized at taking exams. They've trained for this their entire school lives. And this ultimately harms not just the student, but I would argue society as a whole. So the pandemic was an opportunity for us to break out of the mold and try something different. Um, Kula, we understand that Yayasan Tunku Abdurrahman is an organization that focuses on improving access to education. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So Yayasan Tunku Abdurrahman, the thing I like about it most is that it was founded actually based on the contributions of regular Malaysians in 1966, uh, specifically to uplift uh, Malaysians from lower socioeconomic backgrounds uh, through tertiary education, which I believe is the ultimate aim of education to uplift people and give them access to opportunity. So what we've done is in addition to a full scholarship that covers you know, your, uh, all your fees, there's allowances, there's uh, an allowance to develop yourself, and there's also a leadership development program to develop a lot of these skills and competencies that I think the more privileged among us take for granted. A lot of times we can see that scholarships are often divided into two types of categories. You have these scholarships that we call merit-based, though I would argue that's a misnomer due to the correlation between uh, wealth and academic performance, mm. uh, which, you know, these are the prestigious scholarships that, you know, they bring you overseas. They let you study every course uh, that you might want. And we also have needs-based scholarships, which I feel are seen almost as second rate, which is unfortunate. And the scholarship that we offer at Yaisan Abraman seeks to strike the balance where we provide this leadership development. We treat students uh, as scholars capable of great things who just need support to reach the next level. Uh, while we also look at the full context of a student beyond their results, beyond what they do in their co-curriculars. Because even with a co-curricular focus, if we look beyond academics and we look at co-curricular performance, Co-curricular performance also benefits privileged people more. You need time, you need money in order to participate in these activities. At Waita, it's all about looking at the whole context of the individual. And that, I think, is so important. That's what we need in scholarship reform. So if you think about our, you know, sort of as a society in Malaysia, our approach to education, what would be one of the things you'd like to change? For me... The biggest thing that we need to change about Malaysian education is our emphasis on exams. Uh, I believe it was one or two years ago that our education minister at the time, uh, YB Masli, was talking about getting rid of exams for standard one to standard three students, seven-year-olds to nine-year-olds, getting rid of their end-of-year exams. You know, we haven't made any earth-shattering or groundbreaking decisions based on someone's standard one exams. But there was a lot of opposition to the idea. Um, what Dr. Masley suggested was that in the beginning of someone's education, we would focus on values, on behavior, rather than exam grades. And this practice is something that many other countries have done. They got rid of these formal examinations at a young age. And I think that's what we should be doing. The pressure of exams starts early. 
And anywhere that we can get rid of that would be helpful. In the long term, we should replace all our exams with projects, group projects, individual projects, something that more aligns with the nature of work rather than exams which don't really correlate to what we do in our daily lives. So Kula, what would your response be to people who say that, you know, if we do not have high stakes exams, then children and youth will not want to learn and they'll just end up skipping school or playing a role? I think this is where we need to recognize that the best way to get students to learn is to get them to love learning, not to make them fear exams. I recognize, though, that this is a massive shift and our institutions need to shift first. It is definitely a bold reimagining of education. It's hard for us to reimagine when your SPM results are the main thing people look at when you want to apply for university and scholarships. I would say when that changes, parents will be more receptive to changing education too because no one is talking about a complete loss of standards. We're just talking about more holistic assessment. And this has already been done in schools. So under the new framework of teaching English, uh, a portion of a student's English grades come from a direct oral exam. They speak to their teacher, which was not the case under the old system. Uh, under the old system, you had a conversation with a teacher and you got an English grade for your speaking that was separate from your English SPM results. Uh, if you look at old SPM slips, they're separate subjects, whereas now they are integrated. So it's not about getting rid of exams in totality. It's just about making sure that students are graded throughout the year and that their efforts throughout the year matter rather than, you know, as a student, I could just slack off for 10 months, let's say, and then I could study really hard and still get A at the end. Uh, it's about promoting consistent effort in a way that ultimately would benefit students and society and lessen the pressure at the end of the year. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kula. Uh, that was Kula Ratnam Vijayakumar, a Teach for Malaysia alumni who's currently attached to Yayasan Tunggu Abdurrahman and the Closing the Gap program. And we were speaking to him about education disparity and access in Malaysia, big issues. Um, but, you know, his, his thoughts on the solutions, what can we do mm-hmm. about these issues moving forward? Yeah, and we wanted to reach out to, uh, you know, you, our listeners, to see what you would think about, you know, in, uh, moving our education system forward. So we were asking you on Twitter what should be prioritised to improve our education system. Um, Right now, uh, leading is better digital learning at almost 45%, but close behind is 42% uh, of you who says we should focus on career tracks and 13% of you who think we should eliminate exams. Now, we also have Navin Morgan on uh, Twitter who said that, you know, um, eliminate exams is a good one. Let's follow Finland's uh, education system where they have no exams in early education. This eliminates competition and it's um, because frankly, do kids need to compete? <laughs> learning and continuous learning is the goal. Mm. Um, I'm surprised, I must say, that mm. um, eliminate exams is uh, ranking pretty low on mm. our poll. Uh, just anecdotally, going by conversations uh, and you know what we've heard from many parents and young people over the years, I would have thought that would be like top choice still. Mm. Uh, but uh, what what our poll is showing is that better dig- digital learning. Is yeah, I wonder. In. I wonder how much of this is due to the changes that in changes in how we think about education right because for the whole um, past year or so 
exams haven't exactly been the focus on a lot of parents and children's mind. It's even just access to study. Correct. Simply because it's the access to the daily lessons that Mm. has been the challenge. You know, let's not talk about (laughs) exams yet. Yeah. And and, I mean, to be fair, now there are a lot of talk of exams because of the um, uh, because of SPM, SPM, SDPM Mm -hmm. and all the other... um, It's around uh, the corner. Yeah, Mm. exactly. And, you know, while a lot of people are calling for the postponement, well, a lot of students, um, as it would seem online, are calling for the postponement of SPM because of, you know, some schools are unable to carry carry out trials, students have been only learning online for most of the year. So and they're then, unprepared. Yeah, and then there's also the worry about COVID-19 infections, right? Because the cases number are so high right now, you don't know if even following the SOPs are necessarily... You know, some people might not feel safe mm-hmm. just going to school and taking an exam in a very... In, in a situation where you're surrounded by a lot of people. Mm, that's true, yeah. Mm. But, you know, interestingly, I saw on social media over the weekend, if I'm not mistaken, there was someone who I think is a teacher who was sharing a different perspective on this, saying that, you know, there are students who are in uh, rural communities don't want to delay the SPM exams because to them, they just want to get it done with. They need the SPM certificate to so that they can use that to look for better jobs, to support their family, to have another source of income for themselves and their family members because... Mm. Their priority isn't going to university. Their priority isn't getting good grades for SPM. They just want that certificate so that they can move on with their lives. Mm, And contribute to household income. Mm. And uh, that's something that's uh, uh, perhaps uh, a bit removed from those of us who, I think Kula used the term urban bubble, Mm. um, where the daily putting of uh, food on the table perhaps is not so much of an urgent concern. For us, um, it is for uh, different communities. Mm. I, I I think Kula brought up great points about um, the fact that just the very basic issues of access to education and how far behind we are in uh, putting up that digital infrastructure that, you know, if if we had done this uh, much earlier, mm. um, much of the issues that we're facing with the pandemic now would uh, perhaps have been mitigated mm. um, in terms of the very fundamental access to lessons, you know. Um, I guess, you know, I, I'm, and I'm torn with uh, what you just shared, Suen, that um, children in certain communities just need um, to get the exams over and done with. They need to be able to move on to perhaps uh, thinking about earning a livelihood. Um, but so much of uh, learning opportunities have been lost, That's right. even for them as well. Um, they who have the least access um, to the online classes, um, perhaps uh, their teachers uh, may not have had um, the, the the right capacity to conduct online classes as well. Um, you know that term of the lost generation. I think really resonates. Um, you know for for these communities. Mm, that's right. And you hear so many. You know you read of so many stories on social media of teachers themselves not knowing what to do because they may have part of their student, uh, part, you know, several students in their class who have access to digital devices, who have access to internet, are able to attend online classes, but they may ha- they might have some students who only attend some of it or some students who just simply don't show up and there's nothing that they can do. Well, there's not much that they can do if the students simply don't have the resources to join lessons online, right? And mm-hmm. if these resources aren't provided for them, I mean, what 
teachers can't be expected to take on everything. I Absolutely. feel like there's, there's that expectation that, oh, your class teacher will resolve everything for you. But no, there's only so much they can do without aid from government, for example. Mm, um, you know, and if we continue to unpeel that onion a little bit more, um, you know, even if a student has access, mm. is able to attend, uh, quote unquote, um, what is their learning capacity? That's right. Um, does their individual learning ability enable them to follow lessons? You know, the, the on-screen approach to teaching and learning is something that not everybody uh, can adapt to. And um, how how are each how is each individual student's um, learning abilities catered to? I think right now it's just about let's deliver the syllabus, mm. you know, let's complete it. Um, and again, the idea of the lost generation is is uh, is the 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 effects are so subtle. I think. Yeah. I mean, in some cases, I've heard of you know parents having to be there with their children when they attend these classes. You know, the parents have to be there to guide them through homework, through help translate sort of what the teacher is delivering on the Zoom platform because one teacher on a Zoom class with 40 students can't mm. be expected to help every individual child and then you need the parent to step in but not again, not all parents have that luxury of sitting with their child at the class. You know, what if the parent has to work multiple jobs? What if the parent has multiple children? I mean, there's Absolutely. only so much that every single adult can do. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, lots of issues when it comes to education. And I think um, what we wanted to do today was um, just to hear it from somebody who who has uh, had that experience. Um, Kula has had the experience teaching in public schools, private schools. Mm. Um, he is now working in an organization where he can uh, well, I guess what they're trying to do is bridge the gap yeah. and, and facilitate um, the access for uh, underprivileged communities. Um, you know, it, the, this is all part of a longer conversation. Um, but that's all the time that we have uh, to talk about International Day of Education today. Um, you can continue to share your thoughts with us at BFM Radio or WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899. Um, do drop us a line as well uh, on Facebook. If you are so inclined, we are at BFM FM The Bigger Picture. And if you missed any part of today's show, you can look up the podcast on bfm.my slash daily digest on our BFM app um, or on some of the podcast platforms like um, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts. Um, stick around um, for our three o'clock show um, where Juliet Jacobs will be doing the Makaranga wrap up for January 2021 on the Earth Matters segment. And, um, you know, it's the it's the first Earth Matters uh, episode with um, Wong Siu Lin and Lao Yao Hua from Makaranga. So she'll be covering some of the issues with them. Uh, this has been the Daily Digest. Um, thank you for listening. BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.